Hi, this is Ed Fitzpatrick. If you enjoy local politics as much as I do, be sure to join our friends at Rhode Island PBS for the show A Lively Experiment. Hosted by Jim Hummel, the weekly series features journalists, pundits, and politicians debating the stories and issues that matter most to us Rhode Islanders. Tune in to A Lively Experiment and be part of the conversation. Fridays at 7 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS and wherever you get your podcasts. From the Boston Globe, this is Rhode Island Report. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to the podcast where we bring you big conversations from our very small state. When we talk about Thanksgiving, there's usually an emphasis on eating turkey, gathering with family, and being thankful. But the holiday also perpetuates incorrect notions about indigenous people and their relationships with the pilgrims. So today, we're speaking with a local expert on Native history and culture to gain some perspective on the holiday. Lorenz Spears is a member of the Narragansett Tribe and the executive director of the Tomaquag Museum in Exeter, Rhode Island. We'll talk to her about Thanksgiving and an intriguing new exhibit at the museum after a quick break. When you want to go beyond the headlines, let me recommend Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Rhode Island PBS Weekly is an award-winning news magazine broadcast that gives you the full story, powered by investigative journalism and narrative storytelling. New episodes of Rhode Island PBS Weekly drop Sundays at 7.30 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS. Watch past episodes at ripbs.org weekly. That's ripbs.org weekly. Welcome back. Loren Spears is the director of the Tomaquag Museum in Exeter, Rhode Island. She's dedicated her career to empowering Native youth and educating the public about Native history and culture. Welcome, Loren Spears. Kanupiam. Welcome. Thank you. You said that as a child growing up in Rhode Island, your elementary school history class made it seem that you, your family, and your people supposedly didn't exist. Has our approach to teaching about Native people and culture improved at all? Very slightly. I think it's been very teacher by teacher, the improvement versus the system of education improving. I would like to see, you know, the Department of Education really take an active role in ensuring that the history is inclusive and includes Native people. There is no Rhode Island history without Narragansett, Niantic, and other Indigenous people's history. There's no U.S. history without Indigenous people's history. So in in order to really change and improve things for Native students nationwide, we have to see ourselves in the education system. Speaking of education, all Rhode Island students saw steep drops this year in scores on the Rhode Island Comprehensive Assessment System, RICAS test. Um, But students who identified as American Indian or Alaska Native had especially low scores. Only 12.3% met or exceeded expectations. That's just slightly higher than homeless students. Why aren't Indigenous students getting the education they need to be successful? Well, I think you have to feel like you belong. And when you don't feel like you belong, that's a problem. I think when you're constantly being forced to hear education and history from one perspective— 
that you start to shut down from wanting to hear it. You know, we don't want to be told that we don't exist like I did in my fifth grade classroom. And and I'm supposed to spit that back on a test? That's that's not something that you want to do. When you're told that you're not good enough repeatedly, that you're not college material, why should you bother? You know, why should you strive? Um, and these are things that are done overtly and sometimes covertly. Um, and I think sometimes by people that don't realize they have um, unconscious bias and that they're doing these things without really being aware. Yeah, what's one concrete change Rhode Island could make to address this issue? I think that you have to start with including indigenous history and culture in the curriculum, not just the fanciful Thanksgiving unit, but the actual factual unit that we have been here since time immemorial and that we are still here and that there is no U.S. history without us included. You know, when you're talking about the Revolutionary War, indigenous people not only were there, but fought in that war to create this country. You know, yet when you start teaching about the Declaration of Independence, how about Read the passage where they call us merciless Indian savages whose known rules of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. That's in the founding document of this country. It dehumanizes and vilifies indigenous people. And why? Because one of their major goals is new appropriations of land. They want to go westward. They're not happy with just 13 colonies. They're already planning to go westward. In order to do that, they have to vilify and dehumanize indigenous people. Hey, you mentioned Thanksgiving. You know, this is the 400th anniversary of the first Thanksgiving between the pilgrims and the Indians. What's wrong with the way this story is typically taught? Well, that's a lot longer than this show. <laughs> <laughs> so they really need to dig in and come visit places like Tomaquag Museum, go to Patuxet, go to the Mashpee Museum, go to the Aquinnah Cultural Center, go to the Pequot Museum and find out the real history. The story that we're told is the story of us, you know, skipping merrily to this dinner and having this feast together. In reality, it was probably more of a negotiation between powers that were trying to solve some of the problems that were going on at the time. We turn these things into fantasy stories. And part of that is we all want to feel good. Telling that story version makes Americans as a whole feel good. It doesn't make indigenous people feel good, which is why if you go down to Cape Cod, to Plymouth on Thanksgiving, you could go to the National Day of Mourning that's looking at the historical and intergenerational trauma, the genocide, the conquest that took place here that was attempting to eradicate indigenous people from even living. Yeah, it's presented as a day of Thanksgiving in and celebration, but from the Narragansett perspective, is it, is it, as you say, a day of mourning? Yeah, I think all indigenous people, even if they, because it's a day that you can spend time home with your family, even if they do have a feast and festivities, they still know that this isn't always a happy time for us because it reminds us of all the trauma and um, loss that our communities have felt due to the conquest that took place here and how it still affects us today. Economically, health disparities, educational disparities, the list goes on. Statistically speaking, despite being a vibrant community that is really connected to its traditional knowledge, 
we still have a lot of disparities and inequities in this country today as we live as dual citizens, citizens of our indigenous nation as well as citizens of the United States. So is there a way to recognize that reality, like a, a more uh, nuanced way to celebrate the holiday? Well, I think if you understand that traditionally we celebrate 13 Thanksgivings in a year, not one Thanksgiving. Oh, tell me about that. So when you are uh, an indigenous person of this region, and you can be, they're not exactly the same for every nation, but if you're from a similar ecosystem, it's connecting you to the land, to the waters. It's giving thanks to the creator for the gifts of those lands and waters. And so we give thanks for that, whether that is uh, thanks for the Wakoni Neep or the sweet water that comes from the maple tree that gives us maple sugar and maple sap, maple syrup, or giving thanks for the salmon, you know, Musquamacut, the place of the red fish. <laughs> you know, giving thanks for that salmon that spawns upstream and that you harvest in the early spring. Throughout the seasons, there's a Thanksgiving for each one. Just like any Thanksgiving, you're coming together with family and friends, you're having the ceremony, you're having the feast, and then you're having the fun. You know, whether that's music and dance, whether that's games, you're doing all of those things. And we have 13 of them throughout the year. Of course, Indigenous history isn't just about what did or didn't happen on Thanksgiving. Let's talk about your most recent exhibit. It's called Away From Home, Native Amer American Boarding School Stories. For people who don't know, will you explain what those boarding schools were? So in, in this exhibit, it's really talking about the federal boarding school system. And most people aren't aware that the federal government literally put a boarding school system together to forcibly assimilate indigenous people. And the idea was to literally strip us of our cultures, of our communities, um, and they forcibly took our children from our families and our homes and across the nation would travel children many states away from their families. Including the Narragansett? Including Narragansett children. I know that there's documentation of Narragansett children at Carlisle. But you have to understand that the boarding school system was later. They were forcibly assimilating children on the East Coast long before that through religious boarding schools, through industrial schools. Um, they were just not part of the federal system at that point, but they were there beforehand. And our children have been going through that for close to 400 years, right? And so um, the forcible indoctrination was cut your hair, change your clothes, force you to eat quote-unquote Americanized foods, dispossess you from your land, disconnect you from your families and your nation, force you to, do, to practice Christian religion, and force you to stop speaking your language. Yeah, what would happen if you spoke your language? Um, you would be severely punished. And I want people to know that this isn't a long time ago. Sometimes people think, oh, well, that happened a long time ago. I have an uncle who was from a different tribal nation, and he was and his siblings were taken from their family and their home, and, and they were whipped if they spoke their language. Wow. And, and it's it's very devastating. And the, and the trauma, when we talk about intergenerational trauma today, we're speaking to the fact that this is what we're living with and trying to heal from. When we talk about reconciliation and healing, schools, as we were mentioning at the beginning, you have to acknowledge the wrong that was done. This country, this state, the schools, in the history, you have to acknowledge the wrong in order for anyone to heal from it. When children don't feel like they belong, it's because they're forced to read things that only tell a part of the story, a part of the history. And it's telling it only from the victor perspective. And they're not telling all the truth. 
Can you give us some highlights from the exhibit? Uh, what will people experience? So you'll learn about that trauma of being taken from home. You'll hear about um, people's individual stories because there's audio, there's video, there's interactive uh, displays. They'll experience some of what people went through through the boarding school, but you'll also hear about the resilience, the healing, and the transition of schools from this horror that was taking place to places that Native students want to go. I'll give one example is like Haskell Indian Nations University, which started out as a boarding school for young children that were being taken from their home and today is now a college where Native students want to go. Is there a particular story that stands out in your mind in the exhibit? Well, the things that break my heart is to look at the handcuffs and think about when families wouldn't release their children they would handcuff the children and take them away. Or when schools like Haskell were boarding schools for these children, on their 100th anniversary, they show little tiny handcuffs where they were handcuffing children when they tried to run away. And when I look at it like that and I think of my own children and my three-year-old grandson and imagine the pain and the horror and the trauma of being taken from your family, that's abuse just in and of itself. But then the abuse of everything has to change, that everything about you is bad. When we talk about self-fulfilling prophecy, if you tell someone they're bad enough, then they feel bad, right, inside their heart and inside their spirit. When you're told everything about you is wrong and bad, and and then you're punished for speaking your language or, or practicing your culture or your religion or wearing any of your belongings. They belong to you. It'd be like someone coming in here today and telling you, you have to take everything that you know as being a Rhode Islander, like no more Dell's lemonade, no more McDonald's, no more seafood, you know, lobsters or chowder, nothing that you know as your norm. And now you're forced to do something completely different. Speak no longer English, some other language. And people, when they put themselves in that place, they can feel it more deeply. They can understand the pain They can understand the trauma and how it still affects people. People don't heal immediately from that kind of trauma. And the fact that you're you're disrupting families generationally from this trauma is, is unbearable. In Providence, the Board of Park Commissioners is considering the permanent removal of the Columbus statue from Columbus Square. What do you think should be done with that statue? Well, I guess as a museum leader, I would go with statues from our history that are problematic should end up in museums when you have educators and context around them and could have the conversation about that history. I think a lot of people think we're anti-Italian when we say we want Columbus to come down as opposed to anti the person that brought the transatlantic slave trade to the Americas, the person that subjugated and enslaved and killed indigenous people in the in the Atlantic islands, you know, the Caribbean, the person that we fictionalized as the founder of this country, right? That's fictional. And this is what we're talking about when we talk about fictionalizing Thanksgiving. We're telling a victor story that memorializes and uplifts a narrative that feeds into what people want to believe, but that's not the truth. And so I think, you know, museums, 
and other educational institutions are supposed to be about the truth. So the truth has to tell all sides of the story. And we can't just fictionalize a story and, and make a hero out of someone who has done so much wrong. Last question about the statues. Do you think we should, Rhode Island should have a statue to Tarzan Brown, the Narragansett runner who won the 1936 and 1939 Boston Marathons? Most definitely. When Tarzan Brown won that Boston Marathon, that is when the state of Rhode Island at least acknowledged that indigenous people were here. And that, just that alone, deserves a statue. But he was also an Olympian and an amazing athlete. Finally, I want to ask you about the major upgrades planned for the Tomaquag Museum, including a new location. Can, can you give us a preview of what's coming up? Certainly. We're very excited about it. If you don't know, we made an agreement with the University of Rhode Island for 18 acres of land on Ministerial Road in Kingston. And we will be creating a campus for the museum. It will have a main museum building, education center, the Indigenous Empowerment Center, and the Archives Collections Research Center. Along with that, there'll be all types of gardens, medicinal gardens, edible gardens, spiritual herb gardens will be all across the campus so that people can learn about indigenous plants and planting. Uh, researchers will be able to come to our archive and collections research center and, and create their works that they're trying to do, books and films and uh, arts. Um, we're really excited about it. If everything goes perfectly, we're supposed to break ground in uh, the fall of 2022 and, and hopefully move in and have uh, the ribbon cutting ceremony in the fall of 2023 for the first phase, which will be the first three buildings and the second phase will be the research center. Loren Spears, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. For more information about the Tomaquag Museum's Away From Home exhibit, check out an article by Carlos Munoz in Globe, Rhode Island. Here are some other stories to check out this week. My colleague Alexa Gagas has a Q&A with Michael Croft, the founder of a new tech startup designed to transform business schools into lifelong learning centers that bridge the gap between academia and industry. Want to keep up with Hocus Pocus 2 filming in Rhode Island? Carlos Munoz has an article on everything we know about the production details so far. Find these stories and more at globe.com slash Rhode Island. That's globe.com slash Rhode Island. Rhode Island Report is a production of the Boston Globe. Today's episode was produced by Megan Hall, Carlos Munoz, and Scott Hellman. Audio mixing and mastering by Marissa Ewing of Hemlock Creek Productions. Our music is from APM. Got a tip? Have someone you think we should talk to? We'd love to hear your ideas. Send us an email at rinews at globe.com. And if you like the show, do us a favor. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. We're taking next week off for Thanksgiving, but we'll be back the following week. See you then. Looking to binge watch all your favorite PBS shows? You need Rhode Island PBS Passport, Masterpiece, Antiques Roadshow, Rhode Island PBS Weekly, and many more. 
Watch them all anytime and from any streaming device. Learn more about this member benefit at ripbs.org slash passport. That's ripbs.org slash passport.